Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid. If you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, yeah. You guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who? Are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Retro Spectating 1999 on its 20th year anniversary we're in february matt and so we're going to celebrate the february 19th 99 release of office space a mike judge joint office space came out on february 19th is that true? i think so it's, it's almost i mean i wish i could take we could take credit for the fact that this episode is actually going to get released on the 19th of february well holy crap <laughs> no one's going to believe us that this is just uh, serendipitous but i swear to god this was not this was not planned and yeah absolutely release date february 19th how about it. that perfect um yeah so this is a new series we're doing just looking back at the year 1999 pretty seminal year in film we have a great list of movies that we're going to talk about but we want everyone's opinion going forward on uh what you want to hear so we're trying to do one movie per month and we've already done she's all that in varsity blues to kick it off uh for the you know quote-unquote january episode that was released in february but from here henceforth it's going to be once a month for February. It's kind of slim pickings, but Office Space seems to me to be a really perfect example of what this what this series uh, can be. It is slim pickings. The other thing that I was sort of thinking about was uh, October Sky, which I think also um, also premiered this week in 1999. That movie, I feel, doesn't really have much of a legacy, despite the fact that it kind of introduced us all to Jake Gyllenhaal. And that is quite a legacy, but <laughs> I think this, this legacy is more important. Probably. Yeah, people look back more, when they think of Jake Gyllenhaal, they think more about sort of seeing him for the first time in something like Donnie Darko or even maybe City Slickers a little bit yeah. earlier. Whereas I think October Sky has kind of been lost to the ages. Office Space was something that was completely off my radar. At the time. I mean, I saw October Sky in the theater. I didn't see Office Space until years later, and it was already kind of on its way to becoming a bit of a cult classic. But you were there on the ground at the time in the theater. You were way ahead of the game, as usual, with this particular film. You have a long history with this. 20 years of history with Office Space. <laughs> I can just sniff them out, Matt. I know. Yeah. No, so Office Space was a movie that, honestly, I don't want to take credit for. It wasn't on my radar. Um, it was on my dad radar he had seen the preview and it really struck him as prescient for him and his life you know he was a early tech guy right this is 1999 this is uh on the downward of the of the first tech bubble the dot-com is gonna burst in about a year or two years after this film was released and he had been in that office 
space life. He had been amidst the cubes. He had been in the sort of uh, around software developers and data processing and all that. And as a person who prefers to be out on the land and not being <laughs> stuffed up in an office, this movie really tapped into the uh, the angst he was feeling. I don't want to speak too much for him, but I remember that being the case at the time. And, you know, he, he rarely was uh, the kind of person to, to rouse us and, and take us to a movie on opening night. We did it for Regal Meridian 16. I remember seeing it opening night after school. So wow. he was super into it. And uh, I'm, glad, uh, I'm, I'm glad he was because uh, I got to experience something that, given the box office, not many people did at the time. Well, that would be my next question question is i'm presuming it was probably a relatively uh badly attended screening i would presume even opening weekend right i remember it being fairly full but i've had that experience a number of times in seattle i think seattle i don't know a lot of people look at the critical assessments maybe more so than what's going to be popular i don't know if that makes sense but at least opening weekends you know i wouldn't saw alita battle angel this weekend really there's nothing else to see wow and uh that that theater was packed so i think opening weekend in seattle especially in february where there's nothing to do and it's just nasty outside people people tend to go to the theater and seattle's also a big tech place so like i I do feel like that you know it was speaking to the redmond campus of of microsoft (laughs) um you know uh at that time interesting that you mentioned this sort of the tech stuff or the dot-com bubble that was going to happen because i believe that amazon which is obviously a seattle company was founded in 1998 does that sound right? 1997? Yeah, it was yeah, it was when the fir- it was the first tech boom. It was it was during that. Yeah. Right. And it was obviously too small to be really involved in that in that bubble or whatever. But I do think it's significant that like leading up to this film, uh, companies like Amazon or whatever were starting to become a thing in order to properly set the table for this film. I think it's important to look at Mike Judge's career and his history and the fact that he was a Silicon Valley engineer years Mm -hmm. before he was ever an animator, right? And then if you want to follow this all the way through to its logical conclusion, now he has a hit show on HBO called Silicon Valley that in its own way is about the last 20 years of Mm -hmm. this, you know, Silicon Valley explosion leading up to, you know, your Mm -hmm. Facebooks and your Lyfts and your Googles, of course, and, you know, all this other stuff that that show parodies. It can all be traced back to judge working in Silicon Valley in the late 1980s, I presume. Yeah, and obviously it's something that's near and dear to his heart, and he really <laughs> is very interested in poking fun at this world. And, you know, Silicon Valley is like the, you know, there have been two big generations of, of tech booms, and Office Space represents one of them, and Silicon Valley represents the, the other, you know, social media Silicon Valley thing. He got out of that business because he's a really funny, talented guy and did some animation, worked for Saturday Night Live, and then uh, where he really uh, got picked up and became huge was with Beavis and Butthead first on MTV first with little silly music videos and then uh, then the movie Beavis and Butthead do America so I must admit that in my formative years MTV as we discussed last week during the she's all that episode MTV was very very important for me and Beavis and Butthead obviously was one of the foremost pieces of original programming on MTV yes. at the time and Beavis and Butthead was very important for like shaping my sense of humor <laughs> and my interest in in uh, music videos, both in uh, in criticizing music videos and then also, you know, wanting to emulate certain artists who came out of, you know, whether it was Mark Romanek or Spike Jones or Chris Cunningham yeah. or whoever, you know, all the guys who ended up getting DVD box sets dedicated to their work later on. Beavis and Butthead was like introducing me to a lot of these really interesting seminal music videos and their Mystery Science Theater 3000-esque mm-hmm. riffs on that became a really, really important part of my, uh, just the <laughs> development of my, of my sense of 
humor in my teenage years. And I got to say, doing the research for this episode, going back and rewatching Office Space and rewatching Beavis and Butthead to America, and then just going down these crazy rabbit holes of watching these videos, I got to I could just spend hours doing that. And I find them endlessly entertaining. And I'm, I'd be curious to like set a 22-year-old down in front of, a, <laughs> not necessarily as to be as a butthead episode, but those those video riffs and see whether they cracked a smile, like whether they found it funny or not. <laughs> I can't decide whether it's completely rooted in a certain type of nostalgia that's specific to those of us who were 13 years old at the time, or if that stuff still holds up for people who weren't there. Like, I, I was a huge Beavis and but- Butthead guy, too. I freaking, I, I was obsessed with that show when it first came on. Yeah. When I was 12, 13, I really, I, I like the uh, stories more so than the videos, and that's obviously flipped over the years because the videos are just freaking priceless. But my <laughs> existence during those, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old summers was almost exactly the same as Beavis and Buttheads. I was watching MTV, watching music videos for hours a day, <laughs> and then when I was bored or wanted a snack, I'd, you know, walk four blocks to the 7-Eleven and <laughs> come back, you know? Uh-huh. So I, I led a very Beavis and Butthead style existence, you know, very much so of the time. I'm not sure. I, I do want to think that the humor is timeless and stupid for stupid sake and very, you know, glorious. I, 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 I don't know, but that would be an interesting experiment. Well, I was already kind of obsessed with Mystery Science Theater 3000 at the time. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, the fact that Beavis and Butthead was taking that kind of format and uh, appropriating it in front of music videos and these very, like, just little snippets you know usually it was only two or three minutes at a time interstitials between the quote-unquote stories yeah um i just ate that it was just catnip for me and honestly when i think back on that show the genius is in the music videos and and i'm not saying I was, you know, more intellectually sophisticated than you were at the time, whatever. I'm just saying I was never particularly interested in the stories themselves. It was always just filler to get back to the genius of the show. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I didn't really respond to the movie. And that's why I've never really been drawn back to rewatch it. I, I, I watched it again last night for the first time in probably 15 years. <laughs> How'd it go down? It was fine. It's it's fine. I mean, all, all things be, being equal, it's, it's pretty funny and it still works pretty darn well. And just the novel of the animation actually being so much more kind of polished than it was on TV yeah. uh, is effective. And, you know, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore are kind of funny. And uh, uh, Stack, what's his name? Robert Stack, <laughs> who apparently was giving the exact same direction he was given when he made Airplane, which is don't play this for comedy. Like, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. your character doesn't know he's in a comedy, so just play it straight. <laughs> and as a result, even though he has one joke, which is giving requesting a cavity search and everybody, even though it's literally his only joke, it's it's pretty funny it's interesting to watch the beavis and butthead stuff and you know even the movie with office space and also having seen you know every episode of silicon valley that mike judge is not just this like adam sandler type or whatever who only has this this one note that he plays of of abject silliness and you know toilet humor whatever you want to call it because he can be satirical and very clever and witty and write long-term narratives or whatever so he's doing this by choice because he thought it'd be hilarious and was the best thing to do at the time king of the hill is is something i was never super into but anytime i catch an episode it's, it's pretty funny this is a really talented guy and i think you yeah. know 20 30 40 years from now we're gonna look back at his career and be like wow the guy's got an interesting filmography behind him and he's a pretty unique artist he's very smart very intellectually savvy and obviously is a true renaissance man you know mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot of ways i don't want to necessarily lift somebody like seth mcfarlane up to judge's level i think judge is actually a, a little more accomplished than seth mcfarlane but you kind of you can sort of trace their 
trajectories yeah. similarly because they both just come from a place where they're just just doodling, right? They're just guys mm-hmm. who just doodle funny little comic characters and they can do all the voices themselves and they kind of they're just real one-stop shop do it DIY dudes and then mm-hmm. their stuff is so so instantly relatable that yeah. of course how could they not get some attention and actually find some success pretty quickly judge is just like doodling and doing all these voices and just drawing from his own life and basically gets the attention of first MTV of course right liquid television is where the the first Milton Saturday Night Live even airs some of the early Milton cartoons that he's doing this is pre Beavis and Butthead Milton mm-hmm. I think yeah. Which is interesting because that's obviously where Office Space comes from. And then the Beavis and Butthead Frog Baseball and all that kind of stuff starts popping up on Liquid Television, which that was not in my MTV rotation at the time. I came to Aeon Flux and all that stuff years later. Mm-hmm. Like Liquid Television, it was way, it was way over my head. It was out there. You like Aeon Flux, those kind of things I did not really understand. That was when it was time for me to turn off MTV after eight hours. Yeah, especially, and they would air pretty late at night and they were pretty dark. And, you know, Ren and Stimpy and all this stuff is coming out of that as well. Mm-hmm. So it's all pretty twisted and you know pretty groundbreaking at the same time but it's when kids at school i I don't know what what a fifth or sixth grade at that point would have been talking about beavis and butthead starting to pop up in these sort of hallowed tones and then you would end up finding it at some point when you happen to be home and you know your parents are out to dinner or something Mm -hmm. and you would turn mtv on and the beavis and butthead would pop up and i would just like sit close to the tv and i would always be like looking over my shoulder because at any minute the you know parents could come home or whatever right (laughs) yeah yeah And, and just absolutely loving every minute of it especially the music videos. And so when the movie finally came along, I was automatically a little bit skeptical of it because I knew we weren't going to get any of those videos out of it. And as a result, when I saw the film, I was a little bit disappointed. But it was this enormous hit. I mean, Beavis and Butthead, the show, was already a phenomenon. So when the movie came along, it came along at the perfect time because it came pretty darn early. I think the show started in 93, and by 96, we already had a movie. Yeah. It was a pretty big hit. It was in 1996. It set the record for being the biggest December opening of all time. (laughs) Which is crazy to think about, right? A year later, Titanic comes along and literally blows it off uh, off the charts. But at the time, it was kind of a smash hit. I mean, it ended up doing, um, I think it did like $60 million on a $12 million budget or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty crazy to think about in retrospect. And I don't know if I saw it in the theater or not. I definitely saw it pretty early. You you saw that in the theater as well, right? And and you had mentioned that that was the second MTV film release after Joe's Apartment, right? Yeah, yeah. So MTV Films had just gotten going. Uh, Yeah, I definitely did see it in the theater. And, you know, it's important to note that looking back, like, you know, Beavis and Butthead may seem like this cult show, but like it was a big deal, especially to people of our age. Like the word of mouth was intense yeah. about that TV show, and it was a big deal in the media too. I mean, it was the, the typical you know Christian conservatives and family values people. It was one of the shows that people were railing against and used as this paragon of you know the moral decay of society, right? And so that was even more catnip to people <laughs> of our age, of course. And then they would show up. I mean, they they I was just watching all these YouTube clips. Do you remember when they presented at the Oscars? Yeah, like you can go on <laughs> oh, yeah. YouTube and see Beavis and Butthead present. Presenting. I mean, it's for sound mixing or something like that, but yeah. they fucking presented at the Oscars. I mean, it, and they were showing up in David Letterman all the time because he was a huge fan. They had a Super Bowl halftime show. Exactly, <laughs> yes. I remember that. Uh, you know, they were releasing albums. They were doing duets with Cher. I mean, it was <laughs> it was a big deal. And then you would see this guy, Mike Judge, interviewed on Conan O'Brien or whatever, and he's just this very goofy, unassuming... He's from Albuquerque, right? He's from... I, I don't think he's from Texas, even though Beavis and Butthead and, and King of the Hill are set well, I know, in Texas. I know he's been an Austin guy for a long time. Yeah, he's a Texas guy now. I 
think he grew up in, in Albuquerque. But anyway, just this sort of like kind of dopey, unassuming dude with this goofy, low voice. And you would never presume he'd, you know, that would be the brain that would come up with frog <laughs> baseball, right? Yeah. yeah or exactly. cornholio. <laughs> so yeah, there was a complete disconnect between the creator and the creation at the, you know, at the time. And so he, uh, Beavs and Butthead ends right in what 96 97 somewhere on there he goes on to king of the hill and then uh after the first season of the king of the hill he uh writes this script for office space uh, i think someone at was at fox wanted uh something based on milton from his old stuff they're trying to get in on the mike judge game and uh he wanted to do a more ensemble piece about current, uh, you know, cubicle culture, and this is what came of it. It is weird though that the, his first live-action film is based on like the very first little ten-second doodle thing he ever really came up with, Milton, and that's it, actually kind of a tangential character yeah. in the film, right? I mean, I guess you could make the argument that he makes a decision that frames the climax of the film. We don't have to worry about spoilers here, Matt. We no, no, no. But um, I guess you can't really wrap an entire narrative around the Milton character. No, think about it. It would be dark. But yeah, I think originally, I mean, that was obviously his voice when he did those early little cartoons with Milton. And I think it was always his intention to do it in the movie until he found Stephen Root. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, Stephen Root (laughs) is like onto something that I that makes it even funnier than anything I could have come up with. Yeah. Interestingly, about that, that third act and that climax, I I saw a snippet on Wikipedia that Mike Judge wished he had rewritten. He hated the ending and wished he had rewritten the entire third act. It's not like the greatest, most groundbreaking third act. I find it to be somewhat satisfying. It's a little bit of a, it's, no, not a little bit. It's quite a bit of a Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, it's pretty convenient. Nonetheless, it's it's funny throughout. So, Matt, you you ne- you didn't see this till college. Is, am I getting that right? That's what I thought, and then I I was doing a little more soul searching this afternoon, thinking about it. I think I'm realizing that when we were like seniors in high school, when I was going on the um, the Seattle prep ski bus up okay. to Crystal Mountain. I seem to remember them putting office space on during that ski bus trip. The ideal environment for film watching, of course. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, you just got a bus full of 16 and 17 year olds and you want to put on something that's not too salacious, but still, but you know, also gets the attention of teenagers. So it, it seems like a nice compromise. Sure. You know, I think part of the reason that office space became such a big cult hit years later was because of Comedy Central, where you could air this thing over and over and over and over and it still works, despite the fact that you have to bleep out. I mean, it's not a it's not a super profane movie. No, I mean th- there are some there are some swears involved. Yeah. I mean, it is it is R rated, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But it's not certainly not hard R. I I remember vividly though. This is kind of funny being on that ski bus and we were sitting there watching the movie. And I was kind of like watching it out of the corner of my eye. I was probably trying to I don't know flirt with somebody or something. Yeah. And I was sort of just half paying attention. And then we when you get to the lumber sex scene nightmare <laughs> sequence. Yeah. Whoever was in charge, you know, whoever the parent or the <laughs> faculty, I don't know, whoever was in charge of ski bus at the time, you know, the chaperone. Yeah. went up to the uh, VCR at the front by the bus driver and just because apparently they were familiar with the film and they just real just a little fast 10 second fast forward all right let's get back to the movie it was just salacious enough that they're like all right i don't want to be sitting here with a bunch of 17 year olds watching gary cole yeah having an orgasm which is just unpleasant in general truly and he's all he's all greased up like if you look at it his chest chest is all glistening and stuff it's very disturbing he's surprisingly like ripped you know (laughs) yes he's holding a coffee cup too right doesn't have his coffee cup with yeah Yeah, exactly he's got jennifer aniston's leg in one hand and a coffee cup in the other talk about the cult classic and and we'll get into the nitty gritty, I guess, in a little bit. But in a very general sense, I, I think one of the reasons this movie has endured is that it, it's a quick 90 minutes and it 
it is just a really pleasant watch no matter when you pick it up or at what point you do and it's it's an easy watch and there's no there's nothing groan inducing about really any of the scenes and maybe it's the laconic work of ron livingston and you know i i hadn't watched it in in a in a a few years at least yeah i I just i I was sort of blown away by how how easy easy a film this was to to take down yeah it took me a couple tries before i sort of got it you know sort of like watched it casually on that ski bus and then yeah i got to college and of course this is one of those films it just sort of plays on a loop in dorms or at least did during the you know early 2000s yeah so it just it would just be on all the time and again a great comedy central movie because it's super short Mm -hmm. it's not that profane and you can kind of just you can sort of just drop into it anytime right it's it's one of the great flip test movies because Mm -hmm. if you flip to it on cable you're just going to end up watching it till the end so this movie comes out before the 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 bubble burst before the the dot-com bubble you know it becomes a huge issue in in the economy and society but it becomes a cult hit after the bubble bursts right okay so i do wonder if this played to audience more so after they realized like how bad this world could be and and how sort of uh, flimsy these uh, tech workers existences uh, actually were so we're going into it and these like these cubicle jobs these tech jobs are becoming more and more ubiquitous right like you know we look back on it now it seems like yeah that's the way things always have been but this is a fairly new phenomenon that we have these, you know, internet software workers and these big sort of uh, cubicle farms and these business parks with one shitty restaurant nearby. <laughs> yes, or or three in this case, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, flingers, chilies, and uh, tchotchkes. Yes, tchotchkes. Right? <laughs> God, tchotchkes is one of the all-time great uh, fake restaurants in, in movies. I love it. I love the fact that he throws chilies in there just, just so we get one real one <laughs> so we have a little bit of something to hang on to. Yeah. When yeah. Jennifer Aniston asks him, you're going next store to flingers or chili and it's crazy like ron Livingston explains his job is that you know he's doing the y2k countdown software yes. stuff right maybe that's i don't know if my dad knew about it but like that's what my dad did for a while at Seattle Times was he was the he was the manager of people who were doing that job. So my dad like was a Lumberg overseeing these people doing the Y two K code, which you know in that world is like these crazy really qualified people are doing the most mundane job possible because everyone thought the world was going to burn if they didn't fix the code in time, right? Right, right. So that's a good setup for just uh, having these people with insane existential angst and realizing oh shit is this what my work is going to be like for the rest of my life is this what a job is now i I think that's what people have connected to in the you know in in the time it's become a cult classic well something that'll probably keep coming up over the course of this series considering the fact that all these films came out in 1999 is is y2k panic right yeah i mean it's again if you were too young at the time to remember it or you know perish the thought weren't born at the time this was literally something that people were terrified about and Mm -hmm. didn't know what you know didn't know if if the world was gonna burst into flames at the stroke of midnight plus of course we'd all seen the classic strange days by this point oh yes oh yes we were already worried that that was gonna be a prescient film Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean this movie kind of approaches a lot of this angsty panicky a lot of really these sort of like darker themes through the lens of kind of like farcical satire mm-hmm. but it but it is a pretty melancholy conceit when you think about it i mean it's really a guy who's kind of deciding whether or not he wants to go on living really right? yeah, like yeah. Wants, i mean there's like a very subtle suggestion that maybe he's just gonna kill himself because if this is all if he has literally nothing to look forward to which i think is one of those 20 you know late 20 early 30s uh rites of passage you have to just go through psychologically right no i mean it's this post-college thing where if if he can't be happy in a job that's easy and gives him a comfortable
comfortable life and a comfortable living and you know everything's fine for him like he doesn't he's not he doesn't have a, too many worries in his life but if if all this makes him just extremely unhappy and depressed the whole time then what's the what's the point of anything right so yeah those are fairly heavy themes in this in this bright cubicle business park world that, that, that we're dealing with here i think that's a very classic generation x kind of conceit as well yeah. Right. I mean, these are the characters in this movie are Generation X characters. You know, we saw it. We were in high school and we were fans of Beavis and Butthead. But it's, por- it's important to remember that Mike Judge, the characters in this film and really the the main audiences for MTV at the time mm-hmm. are members of Generation X. Yes. Which is the one that our generation is preceded by. And that is, of course, the generation who embraced grunge with, you know, with open yeah. arms, I mean, this is a melancholy generation, anyway. Again, this is this is a new sort of living that people are making here, and selling out to the man was a real issue for Generation X, right? And it comes up over and over again in, in, in a lot of movies and, and writing and whatnot. You know, Generation Y and the, the millennials, uh, they have no choice but to sell out to the man, right? Like that's just that's just the way the world works. But for these people, it was a little different, and so there was I think, a choice. There was a choice. So I think you're seeing this, uh, yeah, so you're seeing that play out quite a bit in in this movie. It's just kind of interesting. Interesting that uh, Mike Judge's television work has been met across the board with incredible success, right? Beavis yeah. and Butthead was a huge hit. King of the Hill was really a bigger hit because it was it was on a ne- it was a network show. Got syndicated. And got yeah. syndicated. I mean, you know, you know, generations of Judge children will be you know going to college on King of the Hill money, and then Silicon Valley basically became an instant hit when it came what came around what maybe five years ago was when yeah critical hit is, too for sure yeah it won Emmys and stuff whereas. Um, with the exception of Beavis and Butthead Do America, he has never managed to find success in mm-hmm. uh, in feature filmmaking. But it's a pretty short resume. It's, it's this film, it's Idiocracy and it's Extract. Idiocracy has achieved you know cult status as well. I don't think it's as good of a movie. I don't think it's as high a esteem in the, in the, in the cult world as, as Office Space. Extract is pretty much widely ignored by everyone. Yeah, is Extract still too young? Do you think Extract will have cult legs eventually? It's the only one of his films I haven't seen, actually. Uh, I've seen it, and it's I, I only saw it once, and I remember it being perfectly pleasant and enjoyable, but uh, I don't remember really anything else from there. It's not just the spiritual sequel to Office Space. I think he literally wrote it as the follow-up to Office Space, yeah, sort of like makes sense. following a similar trajectory, except from the, from the perspective of the manager, right, as opposed to the peon. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's the only one I haven't seen. But he he's this guy who's just always around. He's always creating. He just he always has the next project going. He's always juggling a lot of things and yet he's never been able to sort of break through even after all these years with his feature film work. When Office Space came along, it seemed like, oh, this this guy just can't cross over. This guy is this is an animation guy and that's where he should stay. Yeah. I mean, you you said that this came after the first season of King of the Hill? Yeah. Like King of the Hill was already a thing by this point. Mm-hmm. He, he's trying to make this transition and he obviously has all these, you know, he's got deals with Fox and there's people throwing money at him and stuff. And it seems like the pre-production process of this was pretty easy, all things considered, for him to get, you know, names like Jennifer Aniston involved. And I mean, I think at this point, the world was kind of his oyster. People seemed to like the script. I mean, he had some, he tried to get some bigger names. Uh, he, he threatened to back out a number of times, it looks like, because he wasn't getting the right people. He finally saw Ron Livingston. He was like, that is absolutely the guy, which makes yeah. sense. Ron, you can't really imagine too many other people doing this role <laughs> besides Ron Livingston. But you also can't really imagine Ron Livingston being much more of a leading man than this, right? <laughs> no, this is probably... <laughs> No, ceiling, yeah. Yeah, no offense to Ron Levy's. I think he's a very 
likable screen presence. He's obviously wonderful in his quote unquote breakout and swingers. Yeah. Uh, he's very funny in a very small role in adaptation. Yeah. But it was never going to get much bigger than this for Ron Livingston, right? Yeah. I mean, because he's, he's, he doesn't have the leading man demeanor. I mean, uh, yeah. there, there's notes on, on Wikipedia about the uh, studio heads getting dailies and they're like, we're going to, we have to fire this guy. Like, tell him to smile more, tell him more energy. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Judge is like, no, no, no. This is exactly what we want. Yeah. Jennifer Aniston, I guess, said that she wasn't getting offered good movies and good scripts and so she took this one and they added a couple scenes uh, mostly with the flair that whole storyline was added when they brought in Aniston it is weird that she is that she's in this movie though is I mean she would have been a huge star at the at this point like obviously not a huge movie star but she would yeah. have been one of the most recognizable faces in the world at the you know in the late 90s and it is it is a little strange that she'd be in this tiny little well, I mean, blip blip on the studio radar tiny is i mean it's a, what universal movie it's it's gonna is it universal fox, 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 fox i think so yeah. i mean it's it's a major studio movie and i you know what she probably spent two weeks in austin that's not too bad right yeah that's yeah. it's, it's pretty pretty easy going down you know these tv actors have their limited off-season schedules to work with so it kind of makes sense but yeah it's weird that mike judge hasn't delved too much more into into film it seems like he takes his time he doesn't seem like he's in a hurry what we know about him does not a hollywood guy lives in austin family man so i he, he sort of goes by the beat of his own drum which uh which makes me happy this movie basically had about the same budget as beavis and butthead do america mm-hmm. uh they both are made you know for 10 or 11 million dollars and beavis and butthead makes 63 and uh worldwide office space just you know limps to about 12 yeah but it's made up that money in vhs and dvd sales tell you that yeah. much you know in a lot of ways it's not dissimilar from the shawshank redemption situation although <laughs> shawshank redemption obviously was nominated for a bunch of oscars <laughs> as well but but that movie obviously found its audience on tnt this movie found its audience on comedy central but also came along right as the dvd boom was about to happen right yeah yeah i mean yeah. the dvd you can't like for those of us who were in college in the early 2000s. I mean, DVD collection became such a thing, like mm-hmm. such a dorm room phenomenon. And uh, it, I got way more obsessed with that. Maybe it's because I ended up like actually having some disposable income when you actually start working. But I was way more into that than I ever was into VHS collection. Plus, you know, you could carry around a little mini DVD player in your yeah. backpack or in, in your car mm-hmm. in ways you couldn't, you know, you couldn't drag around a VHS player. Oh, I bet people your, tried. I bet a bunch I of mean, Gen but, Xers did, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I literally remember like having having a little mini DVD player that I could plug into my into the um, cigarette lighter in my car mm-hmm. and I could just sit there in between classes and bang out office space or whatever <laughs> and so like having access to DVDs having these DVDs kind of getting passed around dorm rooms or whatever it really contributed to this movie in terms of becoming a cult hit it could not have been positioned better I think your ski trip story <laughs> makes a lot of sense because again it's sort of a perfect movie that's not going to be too objectionable but it's not yes. too childlike and it's yeah. a it's a it's a big crowd pleaser. I mean, you're going to have a lot of trouble finding people who didn't like this movie. This is not like a wet, hot American summer situation either. Like, <laughs> this was pretty critically acclaimed for a comedy. You know, yeah. something like 80% Rotten Tomatoes, which is, you know, for, for any comedy, especially a rated R comedy, that's pretty darn good. Sounds like it's something you, you watch pretty frequently huh? like at least a couple times a year just because it's such an easy watch it's 89 minutes long this is something yeah. you just throw on the background pretty often no i mean I, I again i don't think i've watched it in a good five years but we had the dvd and I, I remember watching it numerous numerous times late in high school and definitely in college so yeah i mean it's a movie i've probably seen 10 15 times maybe more but yeah i think exactly for that reason it's just an easy watch and it's it's funny it's pleasant people i really like in it all the bit players in this movie are pretty spectacular john c mcginley 
one of the greats. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> My favorite. And, and Gary Cole, of course, uh, Stephen yeah. Root, and his two buddies, uh, the mad TV guy, I'm forgetting, Brian Herman, is that David, David, David Herman, yeah. I actually was a, I, weirdly, I was a pretty big mad TV guy in the 90s. Same here. Honestly, yeah. I went through a mad TV period where I was actually more excited about that than Saturday Night Live. And so, yeah, Orlando Jones is in this as well. He was also a mad TV guy. Mm-hmm. I think the con- I think the connection with uh, Mike Judge is Mike Judge knew Greg Daniels from Saturday okay. Night Live, and Greg Daniels was the Mad TV guy, I believe. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of people who actually came out of that show, and I remember watching it pretty much every week, even though I wouldn't always necessarily be there for Saturday Night Live. And so, yeah, I think when I saw this movie, he was probably the guy that I recognized the most. I mean, I knew who Ron Livingston was because I'd seen Swingers. Obviously, knew who probably Jennifer knew Aniston Jennifer Aniston, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. But I didn't, you know, this is my first, this is my introduction to Gary Cole and Diedrich Bader. You know, I was never a, um, a Cleveland Rocks, uh, what's it called? Oh, Drew, Drew Carey. I was, Drew never, Carey. <laughs> I was never a Drew Carey. Yeah, I was never a Drew Carey guy. John C. McGinley, maybe I remember from Platoon or something. But mm-hmm. but yeah, Orlando Jones and, and David Herman would have been two of the guys I recognize the most. Yeah. They're uniformly great across the board. Like this movie really has an unbelievably deep roster of bit players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I guess Steven Root and the stapler thing and his kind of affectations is a thing that has kind of like been the most lasting, I don't know, meme from this movie, perhaps. Sure. And, and beating up the printer, maybe. Yeah. Beating up the printer is an iconic scene. And I think everyone can, everyone's worked in an office can identify with that. That's the power of this movie is that anyone who has worked in that sort of environment has a lot of stuff to grab onto in this movie, man. I, I guess we can kind of finish here, but I've been uh, I've been playing this video game on Nintendo Switch called uh, Stardew Valley. You ever heard of this? I have not, but do tell. It's uh, it's it's kind of a Harvest Moon type. If you ever played that game, basically okay. it's a. Uh, open-ended you're you're on a farm you move into a new town and you just you just work the land you grow crops you get to know people in the village it's very very low-key low stress sort of helps with any anxiety you might have and the central conceit is uh you know this is the way people used to live you know like without big corporations without office jobs like isn't this kind of the dream you know i think we can all identify with ron Livingston at the end of this movie being like just want to do nothing sometimes just want to get, get out of it and be done. And honestly, like now in the age of the air, the Airbud, you yeah. know, like, yeah, <laughs> why I'm having such a hard time. AirPods, you know, now in the age of having a, a, a headphone you could put in your ear that's not attached to anything and being able to listen to podcasts like this, you know, all day long, every day. I got to say, when I get out there and do some manual labor or, you know, go just do something menial mm-hmm. or, just you know, driving around people who drive Lyft or whatever, gig economy, just like things that you could do that are just totally brainless and mindless. Mm-hmm. Somehow those things seem a little more attractive nowadays, especially if they involve you getting to work outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to just literally sitting in front of a computer screen for hours on end. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of that desire comes from people's inability to be disciplined about staying off their phones, about staying off their screens. And it's just it's just too easy sometimes. So an excuse or, or, or a way to be forced to interact with the world in a non-screen fashion is uh, is pretty darn appealing these days. It's desirable, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's attractive. I will say the thing that I really took away from this viewing is a that Gary Cole is a genius and that Lumberg might be my favorite character <laughs> in the movie because every time he's on screen, he's fucking gold. <laughs> And I think he's the funniest part of this thing. And B, Lumbergs will always exist 
even if they come, even if they're like updated for a new generation. Oh yeah, that that Lumberg template, like that kind of personality and that middle management mm-hmm. guy, is always going to be there. I, I was just thinking back to working at his post production facility. I worked at for a number of years, VFX House. Yeah, which sounds a lot more exciting than it was. And it was basically one of the more menial, one of the more just sort of like work-a-day punch-a-clock jobs I've ever had. There literally was a Lumberg who worked there, just one of these middle management guys. I won't say his name, but what's funny is that he was kind of this granola dude. You know, he was this, um, he had the beard, because this was would have been, what, maybe 2007, 2008, right around yeah, there. Yeah. So he's he's got the Birkenstocks, and he's got the beard, and he's got the big, weird, floppy, you know, kind of like... Coachella hat that he wears into work every day and just looking at him you're like oh this guy's gonna be so mellow and he's gonna be so granola mm-hmm. but no he's he's the middle management dude and he comes up to you know your cubicle and he gives you the exact same spiel about you know TPS reports or whatever the equivalent is mm-hmm. that's that's his thing and that's exactly and he's got all the mannerisms and he's got the coffee cup just because he's got a beard yeah and he's not you know he's not wearing the suspenders like Lumberg doesn't mean he's not Lumberg right like that will just always exist Exactly. Every middle manager has their TPS reports, which is yes. something that can justify their own existence, right? Yes, exactly. And in those in those days, it wasn't TPS reports, but it was the constant emails where they use terms like you know circle back, yeah, or whatever, right? Yeah. Oh god, you know, so much jargon. Of, yeah, exactly. You know, no, no, I think you're right about Gary Cole. I mean, obviously Gary Cole is great, but uh, he makes some pretty hard <laughs> some some decisions with, with yeah. this role, never to drop the facade never to show any humanity which is absolutely the right thing to do and he is yeah he's pitch perfect here oh man that painful scene where they're celebrating his birthday and oh, just God. the kind of just the tuned out singing of happy birthday with everybody and passing the cake around oh, I've, I've fucking i've stood in there for so many of those you know in the lunchroom and it's just God, it's so uncomfortable. So it's it, yeah. I mean, it's it's a cliche, but the movie is obviously very relatable and still kind of resonates. Why is it considered? Why is it such a cult classic, Oscar? Why do people respond so favorably to this? Why has it endured? Well, I you know I think it's the workplace comedy. I mean, you look at something like The Office, which is you know one of the top streaming things on Netflix, and people are still obsessed with it. And people still rewatch it yep. over and over again. And and you know I think people need that catharsis if they're in that world. Like, I, I think you just hit on the head. It's just absolutely relatable and it's going to be timelessly re- relatable. And it's uh, really, really funny to boot. And uh, it it does it without being sort of mean and cyn- I mean, it's cynical in a way, but it's not, you know, it's not dark, right? It's, it's, it puts on a light face while, while, while encountering these dark themes. So it's, it's easy to watch and relatable and cathartic. So would you say that this is one of the most important films of 1999? Is it, you know, was it worth, a- a- after this most recent watch, would you say, yeah, this is definitely something I would put up with the most important films of 1999 i i would i would say so i mean how many better workplace comedies are there out there matt probably counted on one hand yeah and i can't even really think of that many off the top of my head right now yeah i think it's probably harder to make those kind of movies and this movie makes it seem like um because this movie's pretty effortless and so i think we we just need that in the canon right we we need that one iconic beloved workplace comedy that people can go back to and i think it also just reinforces the fact that 
Mike Judge doesn't get the credit he deserves for yeah. being a pretty damn like intellectually sophisticated satirist. Mm-hmm. Just watching these at the risk of going back to Beavis and Butthead music videos again. I mean, watching some of the earliest ones, mm-hmm. there'll be moments, and a lot of this just stemmed from the fact that they did, didn't have any money and they needed to be able to like squeeze, you know, stretch this stuff as far as they <laughs> could, right? So you would he would do this thing where basically he would show part of the video and then he would just they would just cut to just a still image of Beavis and Butthead, some wacky look on their face, and it's funny just by association. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're because you're sort of projecting all of these thoughts and ideas and um, you know preconceived notions about their reaction to a video like this. So if you see Sinead O'Connor singing "Nothing Compares to You" and then you just cut to like mm-hmm. a look of Beavis, you know a still image of Beavis and Butthead looking shocked or whatever, you just start laughing immediately because you're projecting all these things. It's at the risk of getting all highfalutin about it. It's a lot like the Kuleshov effect, right? Sure. Like the you know I'm sure you're familiar with this Russian formalist guy who would like he would show a picture of. Uh, uh, you know, of a baby carriage or whatever, and then he'd show a picture of a, of a guy, and you would presume that the guy was that that guy was like having an emotional response to the baby, even though he just had this blank look. Sure. Alternately, you show a picture, you know, you show an image of a scantily clad woman, <laughs> and then you show a picture of the same guy, and you're like, oh, he's so lascivious. Look at him leering at that woman, <laughs> yeah, even yeah. though it's the exact same face, right? Sure. So, and I think I think Judge gets this kind of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, he's it takes a pretty darn smart guy to be able to approach so many stupid characters, right? I agree. Like that was that was his thing. I, I want to say that was the last the last coda at the end of the last Beavis and Butthead episode was like, thank you for five years. We'd like to thank all the smart writers, you know, all these smart people who worked really hard to make Beavis and Butthead look dumb. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. For my money, nothing beats uh, Beavis yelling at pavement to try harder. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite music video. Or, or Beavis and Butthead uh, speculating about uh, how badly Pantera's <laughs> father treated him as a child. <laughs> like, you treat your stepmother with respect, Pantera. <laughs> I mean, I, I would recommend people go, go back and rewatch Office Space and that people also go onto YouTube and watch some Beavis and Butthead videos because that stuff really fucking holds up. And it and it makes me so happy that Mike Judge is still out there mixing it up, still doing interesting work, still creating shows like Silicon Valley. I mean, you know, Beavis and Butthead came along in, you know, 93. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here we are 25, 26 years later and he's still out there kind of fighting the good fight, making interesting work, working in different, you know, different formats. And um, I'm, I'm very happy to have been around for the entire run of Mike Judge's rise. Yeah, and he's, you know, he's he's in that HBO family now, so he'll be able to make whatever TV shows he wants for as long as he wants and which is uh which is fantastic. 100%, yeah. All right, so this has been Retro Spectating 1999 February Office Space um, looking to next month March, we have some potential contenders in here. I, I, I encourage everyone to do the research on their own if they'd like, but Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels is our first uh, big Guy Ritchie moment. Uh, we have Ed TV, The Matrix, Analyze This. I mean, I'm sure there are some other ones if you guys want to take a look, but you know, we might be leaning Matrix at this point, but if we hear otherwise from the crowd, we might change our minds. Does that sound pretty good, Matt? Just send us an email at wlmpodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know if there's something you're super passionate about we'll consider uh covering it on the next episode all right perfect well until next time this has been we like movies say goodbye man goodbye damn it feels good to be a gangster a real gangster ass nigga plays his cards right a real gangster ass nigga never runs his fucking mouth because real gangster ass niggas don't start fights and niggas always got a high cap showing on his boys how we shot him but real gangster ass niggas don't flex nuts because real gangster ass niggas know they got him 
And everything's cool in the mind of a gangster Cause gangster ass niggas think deep Up 365, ayo, 24-7 Cause real gangster ass niggas don't sleep And all I gotta say to you Wanna be, gonna be cocksucking pussy pranksters Is when the fire dies down, what the fuck you gonna do? Damn, it feels good to be a gangster <laughs>